The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Exodus chapter 30. And we continue our study of the tabernacle this afternoon in its symbolic representations of Christ in redemption. Uh, this is the focal point of Israel's worship. This is the place of sacrifice. This is the place of communion with God. It's the place that God met with his people. And as we've learned, tabernacle means dwelling. So this is the tent of dwelling. It was the place where God's presence was with Israel. And it was to symbolize that God one day would come in person, in the person of Jesus Christ, and he would dwell with his people. Now, an interesting point about the tabernacle is, there are many interesting points, but the temporary nature of it, that this structure would not have been needed if Israel had trusted God that he would fight for them and would give them the land that was promised to Abraham. But because they lacked faith... Even after seeing what God did to the Egyptians in the Exodus, they lacked faith. And so God left them in the wilderness until that generation died. And if they had obeyed and conquered the land, uh, this wouldn't have been necessary because there would have been a permanent structure that was built. Israel wouldn't have been transient. transient. But as it, as it was, it took 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and as they went through the wilderness, they took the tabernacle with them, setting it up and taking it, time, uh, taking it down many, many different times. So during this, these years of wandering, they needed a temporary place to meet with God, and the tabernacle was God's gracious provision to meet with them. And that's not to say that the tabernacle was a roughly, hastily put-together structure uh, because Israel was stubborn about it. But no, this was a, a very ornate and stunning place of worship. It was built from the finest materials with intricate quality workmanship. And it was to symbolize Jesus Christ and his incomparably complicated work of redemption. And so the tabernacle had to be the finest that they could make because Jesus Christ is the finest that God could give for his people. Now, later, we will discuss the outside of the tabernacle, that is, the, the, um, uh, the look of the tabernacle from the outside belied the beauty that was on the inside. I'll explain later on why that was true, and that'll shed some light on the New Testament, the condescension of Christ and his subsequent exaltation to glory. But thus far, as we've uh, been studying the tabernacle, we're still on the outside of it and checking out the surroundings before we step into the structure to see the beauty of that magnificent place. And interestingly, the, the inside of the tabernacle, that is the actual personal view, what it looked like on the inside was a mystery to the Israelites. More a mystery than it is to us now that we can read about it because they were never permitted to go on the inside to see it after all of it was put together. So they didn't see it. Anyone who wasn't a priest never saw the inside. Anyone who wasn't a priest was not allowed to touch any of the articles of worship. To touch it was death because these things were sacred. They were holy. And it was to show that the way to God was not yet open to the individual. 
Always, there had to be a go-between. There had to be a representative who went to God for the people. And of course, that representative was the priest. And he stood in the place of Christ who would one day consecrate the way to God forever for everyone who believes. So that each of us can come to God without any kind of an intercessor. We come through Jesus Christ. And this is what the priest did. He represented Jesus Christ and only he could enter into the tent of meeting. Uh, We've seen in our virtual tour of the outside many significant details. There's much here to learn. As I said, the work of redemption is very intricate in all of its details. And so we walked around the outside to see the enclosure where there is a beautiful white linen fence representing the righteousness of Christ. Then we walked through the main gate of that fence Uh, that's the only place that you could pass through, symbolizing that there's only one way into the presence of God. And we've seen how that that, uh, gate was another symbol of Christ who told his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So we can't reach God without Jesus Christ. So Christ becomes the surety for the entrance into the presence of God. So in other words, what we must do, we've got to pass through the white linen fence, that is the righteousness of Christ, before we can ever come into God's presence. And then once in the courtyard, uh, we stopped at the altar, which was the first barrier to the entrance to the tent dwelling proper. This is where animal sacrifices were made. And that is to teach us that no one comes to God without a sacrifice. And I'll leave you to contemplate the many sacrifices that we've studied in the past. And you you know already uh, that these sacrifices showed, uh, showed Jesus Christ in many different ways. The power of Christ, the ability that he has to cleanse unworthy sinners. In all aspects of sin, Christ is worthy to take care of it all. It spoke of, of Christ's appeasement of God's wrath. And then that brass of the altar represented judgment. Christ was judged on the cross. He experienced the wrath of God and the fire of the altar symbolizes the punishment that's due because of judgment. So we're reminded in all of this that Jesus was the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world, and his death has the power to satisfy God and the power to protect everyone who is covered under his blood. The Bible, remember, says from the foundation of the world. And so that tells us everything that we see in the tabernacle and everything in our salvation today is not a lately devised plan. This has always been in the mind of God. God created, God initiated, and then God unfolded the way that he would reveal himself in the majestic glory of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as we step then into the structure or, or, or near to the structure, there, there is another article that stands halfway between the altar and the entrance of the door of the tabernacle. And this beautiful uh, piece is called the brazen laver. And in that brazen laver, we see a picture of cleansing. Now, if you look at Exodus chapter 30, beginning at verse number 17, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and its foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water. 
that they die not, or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so shall they wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. God said they will wash, they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. Now washing, of course, is the purpose of the labor. I'll have much to say about washing. Um, That'll come later. But I want us to look here for just a minute at the fear in this statement. That God said Aaron and his sons must do this that they will not die. I was thinking about that um, when I started working on this message right after we had a Lord's Supper observance way back in October. I started this message way back then. And I was thinking about reverence to God and about how much that I enjoy those Lord's Supper afternoons. Much of the time in our regular services, there, there is commotion, there is shifting around, and there's whispering, and there are distractions. Much of the time, we lack reverence when the Word of God is preached. Baptists are, are not much known for sanctity in the sanctuary. Uh, there isn't much of a, a sense of reverence when we come into this place. On Sunday mornings, then, we have a call to worship, and uh, I, I, I instituted that and wanted to do that because I like the idea of getting our people ready to worship, getting everybody calmed down and in their places for the beginning of worship. And I thought if we did that, it would give us a better sense of reverence in, in what we're about to do. So I asked that the doors would be closed to the outside that so no one is permitted to come in while we're reading the scriptures. Um, I didn't want the commotion. I didn't want the interruption uh, because I think the scripture reading time is a time that we get our minds settled and focused on worshiping God. So each of you should know that the doors out here close at 11 o'clock. And as that time approaches, what we should do is get into our places, be ready to read from the word of God, have our Bibles open to the scripture that we're going to read. But Doing that, I find to be a very difficult thing because it is so hard to change the paradigm of this church. It's very difficult to get people to do what you want them to do when they're not used to doing what you want them to do. So we kind of struggle with that all the time. And there's just this thing about it that Baptist and reverence just do not fit in the same sentence. And we want to change that. We, We need a more reverent sanctuary. But it's interesting that on Lord's Supper... Afternoons, this whole thing changes because then the people in the church become very, very reverent. I love the supper because when we come to it, there is this foreboding almost sense of silence that hangs over the entire congregation. So as we prepare the supper, we get ready. I can preach the sermon. There's not a lot of stirring around. There aren't people going in and out. There's everybody just sitting and listening. And then when it comes time that we're actually serving the supper, it goes stone cold silent in here. So that the only time you hear a noise is if we accidentally clang the plates up here together, the cups or the trays or whatever, and that's the only noise that you hear. And, and that, to me, that silence is golden. I love, I love that. I love what I don't hear. I don't hear anything. You can almost hear a pin drop in here when we're doing the Lord's Supper. That's the kind of reverence, in a sense, that I'd, that I'd like, to, like to see uh, in our church, in our regular worship services. So silence conveys an attitude of reverence. We all know that Paul warned the Corinthians that the supper was solemn. And he said, 
because some of you eat unworthily, because you have practices that, that hurt this reverence and the respect that you have for the supper, because you don't live your lives as you should, some of them misused and abused the supper. So Paul said, some of you have died. He said, some of you sleep. He means some of you have died because of this. Some of you are sick because of this. So I think this is interesting that uh, the New Testament gives that kind of a warning because we don't expect to see Old Testament types of judgment brought into the church. But apparently doing, thing God's, doing things God's way and respecting God is not just an Old Testament commandment. Reverence is not just an Old Testament concept. And so I thought I would just mention that because I'm still working on developing a different culture in the church so it's more solemn and reverential. I'd like to see more respect for what we do, more consideration of the gravity of this occasion. And I don't understand why that doesn't transition from Old Testament to New, especially reading 1 Corinthians and how Paul criticized the chaos of the Corinthian church in their use of speaking in tongues and prophesying and personal self-assertion. They made themselves the focus of the church rather than Christ, who is the Lord of the church. So when we step through the doors of, of the church, that ought to be our main concern. We are here because of Jesus Christ. He is the focus, not anything else that we do. But in any case, this, in any case, this lack of respect, the lack of reverence, lack of strict obedience to the commands, that was something that was not tolerated in tabernacle worship. Very rarely were there exceptions to that. And when there were, it took special intercession from Moses. So this is a command that constantly hung over their heads. We must do this right. Do this, don't do that, lest you die. And perhaps we don't have that type of warning today because everybody in the church would be dead if we did. So we're not going to get that kind of warning. But that's something for you to think about. Think about that before you decide to carry on a conversation with someone when the, when the word of God is being preached. Think of it be, um, before you decide to go out when you could sit just a little bit longer. If you must go out, go out. But remember, when you walk through the doors over there, we're here to enter the worship of the holy God. All of that's extra. I'll just give that to you. Those are my thoughts. Maybe you don't think a paradigm shift is needed. That's okay. You can be wrong about that because God hasn't killed anybody around here lately. So if you make the mistake, I don't think you'll die. Well, returning to our tour, we're, we're through the gate, through the fine linen fence. When the Israelite brought his sacrifice inside of the fence enclosure, each approached the priest at the brazen altar to have his sacrifice killed and the offering prepared. And at that point, no one who was not a priest could proceed any further. Now, another interesting thing I think about tabernacle worship is that the tabernacle was not a place for people to come and hear sermons. Uh, rarely, probably, did the priest ever have anything to say to the congregation of the people in the, in the tabernacle. Later on in temple worship, they used the temple courts to do some of that, to sing and so forth. But we don't find any commands for singing in tabernacle worship, nothing about giving sermons or anything like that. Uh, there's no work for anyone to do at the tabernacle but the priest. They're the only ones that are involved in the worship. Other Levites would transport the tabernacle from place to place, and they would set it up. They would do everything that's on the outside, but they didn't have any worship duties. 
So the priest would make the sacrifices, the priest would sprinkle the blood, the priest would make the bread, take the bread that goes on the inside on the table of showbread. They would be the ones that would light the lamp on the inside. The priest performed all of those duties because it was intended to show that Christ is our great high priest. He is our only intercessor to God. But also in in seeing that, it was to show what priests are supposed to do and what believers are supposed to do once we are in Christ. That is, a, a believer, every believer in the New Testament becomes a priest of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to be ordained for that. You are, you are a priest. Immediately upon believing in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and you become a priest to God. And as the priest uh, made the sacrifices, the next thing that he was to do was to prepare for his duties. The sacrifice on the altar is a symbol of our justification with God. The believer priest is justified once for all based upon the blood that's shed. But the priest is not to stop at the altar after making the sacrifice. And a believer priest is not to stop and stay at the cross. Now what we must do, we must come to the foot of the cross. We must behold Christ lifted up and dying for our sins. But we're not expected to stay at the cross and simply be content to view Christ but not to serve him. Maybe that's part of the source of that saying. Too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. We have to do much more than contemplate the, the salvation that we have in Christ. The word of God says that we need to complete our salvation in him. Now that doesn't mean that there's something else we can work to do to get our salvation. But completion of our salvation is for the child of God to go on in his sanctification. To grow, to be more like Jesus Christ. And so what we must not do is sit at the cross and do nothing. We've got to get up. We've got to go on to sanctification and we must become consecrated workers for Christ. Now I want you to understand that because there are times when we hear church members say they don't want to be called on to work. All they want to do is listen to sermons. They've camped at the cross as if there's nothing else that God intends for them to do. Now you imagine how God would treat Aaron if he never moved away from the altar... If he stayed right there, he never went into the tabernacle and never took the blood of consecration. Now we have these pictures, the the picture of this approach to the labor, that it's time for the priest to begin his service. Now in our salvation, we're expected that once we have believed, we are to go on to daily duties as servants of Christ. In Christ, we've been cleansed once for all, but we live in a world that is sinful We live in a world in which the dirt of sin often clings to us as we walk through this world. Now, for that, we need daily washing from our sins. That's one of the things this labor pictures. The labor is significant as a a type of washing from daily defilement. And so standing between the altar where the place of sacrifice is made and the door of the tabernacle is this brazen altar and every priest must stop there to wash before he enters into his duty, not one time, but many times as he goes through the day in its active service to the Lord. So this labor is a wash basin mounted on a pedestal. It's in the courtyard between the altar and the entrance of the tabernacle. It is filled with clean water 
And the purpose was to provide the priest a place to wash his hands and his feet before he entered to do service on the inside. Now, in this picture I want to show you, this is an artist's rendering of the laver. And as you can imagine, the laver, much like everything else in the tabernacle, was very rich in symbolism. The laver is a picture of cleansing and how we must be cleansed before we're ready to enter our service to Christ. Now, we, we can think about that in relation to the Lord's Supper, that each time before we partake of the Supper, I, I ask for us to have a silent prayer, and that's the time for us to pray and confess our sins so that we don't eat the Supper unworthily. In other words, what we're doing is washing ourselves. We're cleansing ourselves through prayer. We're, we're getting the purity of cleansing from defilement of the world. As John wrote in 1 John, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it is with service. We're not ready. We're not ready for it until we're cleansed. Cleansed both in justification and in our sanctification. This afternoon I'd like to talk about the cleansing and show you different aspects of how God will cleanse. And uh, further how he expects us to be proactive in our worship towards Uh, holiness with a clean Christian life. And we're not going to reach all that this afternoon, but that's where we're headed with these sermons on the labor. So our first observation would be the source of our cleansing. How is a child of God cleansed? How is he ready to be used in God's service? Well, first we see that cleansing proceeds from the word of God. I'm sure you notice that we don't have a brass, a brazen laver sitting in our church for people to come and wash before the services. That's not how we do things today, but rather we have the Word of God. And you can't miss this, I don't think, when you come to Berean Baptist Church, that the primary focus of our services is the Word of God. There isn't anything that we do here that can work without God's Word. We go to God's Word to find our source of strength. This is the place that our minds are cleaned out, that they're flushed out with the Word. And and there's some who see a church like ours, and they see the insistence that we have of living only by the precepts of God's Word, and they'll say to us, you people are crazy. You're brainwashed. Fine, I'll own that. Yes, we are brainwashed. We've been renewed in the spirit of our minds and we've had our brains washed in the labor of God's word. That's why we're different people. So the labor in the courtyard, it speaks of the washing, made of solid brass, filled with clean, pure water. And it reminds us of what God said to the prophet Ezekiel. God said to the prophet, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness. Now, as we saw in the brazen altar, the brass altar, brass is a symbol of God's judgment. God's judgment is never very far away from any of these ceremonies because it shows that God is holy and righteous and that everything must be done acceptably according to his holy character. So the laver, this huge laver, contains this clear, pure, clean water, and that water speaks of the word of God. And often you'll find this in scripture that the word is compared to water. Even baptism uh, as a symbol is a symbol of being cleansed when that person is immersed into the water. It's not an actual cleansing, we know that. That comes by 
belief in Christ, the blood of Christ. But the symbolism is there. Going into the water is a cleansing, you might say. And I might mention that sometimes our water over there might not be as clean as we would like it. Uh, Lino skims off the flies after it's been there too long. Uh, He is the priest of the baptistry over there, so he takes care of all of that. But thankfully, we don't find anything in the Word that says there must be a chemical test for purity of the water that we use, because that we would probably fail that. But there isn't anything that's more important in the Christian life than God's Word. Jesus said that we are to search the Scriptures, for in them we find eternal life. So we are to search the Scriptures. God's Word is to be preeminent, and that's why when we meet here, In Berean Baptist Church, the only subject that we have is God's holy word. We're not going to preach from the newspapers and magazines and television programs, and we won't take our, you know, our our interest in those things. We will always go to the word of God. So what do we do? We start a day out. We start today out with reading God's word. There's that call to worship. Immediately we go to God's Word. We read it again. Jason reads it again before I preach the sermon. And then when I get up to preach the sermon, I read from the Word. I read from our text and I preach from it. And then we bring in other scriptures to support the premise of the sermon. So we start in the Word, we stay in the Word, and we finish in the Word. Why? Why is there so much emphasis on the Word of God? Well, let me tell you, first of all, the Word of God is important because the Word of God reveals God's will. We find God's will in God's Word. To find direction in your life, to find out what God expects from you, the place that you must go is to the Word. So if you want to find God's will, and I've talked to many people who said, I don't know how to find God's will, how am I supposed to know what to do? This is the answer to that. The place to go is to the Word. I know you're all familiar with this scripture. This is one that ought to be engraved in the fleshly tables of your heart using biblical language. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. If we are furnished completely to good works through God's word, then there is no other source needed. We don't need another revelation from somewhere else. We don't need other material to read. We only need God's word. And we are to read it and apply it. It provides the perfect cleansing that makes us fit for God's service. You know, I I just love to make this a sermon on that one subject. I, I love to talk to you about God's word Why is God's word so important for you as a Christian? And in fact, I did preach on that in the First Thessalonians series. Uh, First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 is the foundational verse of the epistle where Paul wrote, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The Bible is not the word of men, it is the word of God. It's quick and living and powerful because it is the word of God. And it's never going to help you unless you thoroughly, you are thoroughly convinced and believe that it is the word of God. The word works effectually in you that believe. So Paul never advised, Paul never preached Never did he tell anybody to do anything 
that wasn't tied to the instructions found in the Word. Now, if you want, you can go back to that sermon in 1 Thessalonians. It wasn't all that long ago, and you can see the many ways that the Word works. The Word works effectually in you that believe. It is active in you if you are active to hear, to read, to study, and believe. So the Word will guide you into the will of God. And I don't really need to be too specific about that because rarely do I find people who who study the Word and stay in the Word, people who are students of the Word, rarely do I find them come to me and say, can you help me find God's will for my life? Can you show me what I'm supposed to do? No, if they've been in the Word, it's working effectually in them already to show them what they are supposed to do. So rarely... Do I counsel with anybody or have people in my office and I just don't know what to do? I'm completely stumped. It just doesn't happen because we have so many good students of God's word in Berean Baptist. So the labor there is there to remind people of how important God's word is. And if you are a Christian who neglects the reading of God's word, then you're not prepared for God's service. The priest can't enter the tabernacle without washing in that labor. And you needn't think that you are prepared for your prayer life, that you are prepared for your worship or prepared to for any service to God until you spent time in God's word. I don't know how we get that across in stronger terms than we've used. You're not spiritual. You're not consecrated. You are not pleasing. You are not ready to worship unless you have the word of God on your mind. Why do we need time in the Word? Because secondly, the Word reflects our sin. How do we know if we've chosen the right way or the wrong way? How do we know that the path we walk is in holiness or it's a path to destruction? How do we know that unless the Word reveals sin? Now a person who reads the Word daily would assuredly have a heightened awareness of sin. You know, all of us can expect dullness, dull sensitivity to sin if we're not in God's Word. But the moment that you pick up God's Word, you find that it has convicting power. It reveals, it reveals how filthy and defiled we are when our lives aren't pure and holy. And there's great insight in this in Romans when Paul talked about um, his inner struggles with sin. He was very clear about it, how, how he discovered the awfulness of sin. Once he was justified by faith in Christ, this is what he wrote in Romans 7, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin. But by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So Paul found the law of God, the word of God, to be very forthright and unforgiving about sin. When he read the word of God, he found that the word pounded him. The word was always working in him and just grinding at him because of the sin in his body. It was always beating him into submission. Sin fooled him. And sin, he said, was even powerful enough that it disguised the purpose of the law. He had to find out, what is this law for? But then in the end, when it's all revealed to him, Paul says the law is holy, it's just, and it's good. And what the commandments would never do, they would never let him escape identifying and dealing with his sin. 
And that's what Paul's struggle in Romans 7 is about. The law crushed him. It fought against him daily. It exposed sin so that Paul finally cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And there's only one answer to that. The law kills. It kills your hope of life. It forces you to do one thing and one thing only. Go to Jesus Christ for your deliverance. So when you read the word of God, you will spot your sin. And the place that you go to get rid of it is straight to Jesus Christ. The word points you to Christ. It reflects our sin and it reveals Christ. Now I didn't make that a bullet point on your, on your, on your outline tonight. But you might just write that in. The word also reveals Christ. So this is the purpose of the labor. There is a picture of Christ there. And not just Christ, we'll also discover the Holy Spirit is in this picture too. And we'll talk about that in the next sermon. David wrote in the Psalms, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? In James 1, verses 23 to 25, James wrote, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So the word of God is the place to see a reflection of what you are in comparison to the way that God sees you. Once you see yourself in the word, and then you leave without fixing the flaws that you see, James says, in in effect, that you're like a person who gets up in the morning, you look at your face in the mirror, then you go off and you forget that you needed to comb your bed head, you don't remember that there was drool running down your chin, and you forget that there's that crusty sleep in your eyes. You don't remember that you were supposed to shave because you got four days stubble on your face. So you just go off forgetting that you need to clean up and look presentable. And that's what the mirror is there for. It's there for that purpose. So you see what the faults are, what needs to be fixed. And that mirror is supposed to help you fix the problems. And this is exactly what James means by the word of God. It is the mirror. It is the thing that helps you to see the problem and then prompts you to fix that problem. Now to show you how perfect the word of God is, nobody can tie this whole picture together like God does. Nobody knits the scriptures together in such a way that all of these things that we read like we've just read in the Old Testament and what we've just read in the New Testament fit perfectly together. And when you learn both sides of this, then you have a complete picture of what these Bible authors are talking about. Let me show you an example of this. God puts things together with precision. Let's go to Exodus 38 for just a moment. And our question is, what did Moses use to make the brazen labor? What is his material? Now, brass was needed for many parts of the tabernacle. Brass needed to be collected from the people. Sometimes it would be found in jewelry. It would be found in pots and pans, and they would melt it down to refashion it for the purposes of making the different parts. Brass was used also for the brazen altar. It was used in covering the post for the fence. It was used in the foundation sockets of the fence. And... uh, There are offerings that are mentioned in the scriptures for 
those different things. But when it comes to the labor, we don't see a place for an offering. There's no mention of an offering of brass to make the brazen labor. So let's notice what Moses used for, for this brass. This is Exodus 38, verse 8. And he made the labor of brass and the foot of it of brass. And where did he get this brass? He made the labor of brass from the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. From the looking glasses or from the mirror, the mirrors of the women. Now, why did he choose that? Well, this brass was high quality. It could be polished to give an excellent reflection. In those days, mirrors weren't glassed with a silver or an aluminum backing, but instead they're made of very highly polished brass. Now, isn't it amazing how the Bible teaches us to, to look into the Word? In the Word, we see ourselves. It reflects what we are. It gives information as to what we should look like. And to make that point in a very highly symbolic way, God had the labor made from mirrors. Now, the labor represents, again, the cleansing of the word as we are reflected in it. And as we look at that and see what Moses chose to make this, this labor from, where God said to go get this brass, uh, that gives us significant insight into James chapter 1. And you have to know that these men who knew the scriptures forwards and backwards practically, they knew what Moses did in the tabernacle. And James chose this illustration almost assuredly because they chose the looking glasses of the women in the Old Testament and he knew that that compared to the Word of God. And he just used that, put it together, and that's how we get the picture. Now my question is, how would we know those kinds of things unless we study these things out? Unless we learn this? It just puts so much more, more of a meaning behind what James had to say in the New Testament. So that's an indication of the value of our study. The word is magnificent in many ways. God is the only one who could weave symbols like this in and out throughout his word to teach such amazing truths. Cleansing starts with the word. You'll never be the servant that you should be until you have been cleansed by the word. The word of God says, cleanse your ways by the word. And only then are you ready to enter into the service of your Christian life? Now, I'm going to stop with that. I don't want to tackle the next part of this. That, that would keep you too long. So we'll come back again and we'll talk about what the Word does. We'll talk about it as a spiritual cleansing agent. This labor reflects Jesus Christ who is the living Word. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... The word that we've read tonight and the study that we've had, we're thrilled to have your word, your precious word given to us so that we can learn more about you. We can learn what you expect from us. We can learn what we should be and how we can be cleansed in all of our ways so that we can be made like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do pray that you would speak to our people and you would look at the attitude of our hearts and that we would be people that are ready, able, and want to be used in your service. That we don't shy away and just sit and listen to sermons, look at the cross, and never think about the service that we need to render every single day for you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful servants. Bless our people. Bring us back into your house again. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.